3: Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take an in-depth look at the theater through interviews with actors, directors, writers, and everyone in between. I'm Jamie Dumont, recovering Broadway marketer, personal chef, and event planner. And I'm Rob Russo,
0: writer and theater critic with StageLeft.nyc.
3: Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, I'm very excited about today. I know. This is an
0: episode long long in uh, development for us.
3: We've been talking about doing this episode for... Over a year. I mean, like, like since we met. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Like, yeah, pretty much since yeah. like May of 2018. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, really it's wow. here. It's the here. day has arrived. It's happening.
0: Should we tell people what we're doing? Yeah, Rob, you do it. Okay.
3: <laughs> well, today uh, we're going to spotlight
0: a show that we are both uh, madly in love with. It's called Soft Power. Uh, self-described as a musical within a play, currently playing at uh, the Public Theater downtown, Book and Lyrics by David Henry Huang, and Music and Additional Lyrics by Janine Tesori. It's a really interesting show to describe, and in fact, we asked David when he was on the show with us almost a year ago to he did describe a, it.
3: beautiful and job. He
0: did a beautiful job. So I'm going to read uh, his description because it's going to be way better than anything that either one of us would have come up with on our own. So Soft Power is a play that becomes a musical. The first 20 minutes is a comedy that takes place in 2016. And then the show jumps 100 years into the future. And the incident we just saw has been mythologized and become the source material for a beloved East West musical in China. So theoretically, what you're watching for the rest of the show is a future Chinese musical that celebrates from a Chinese point of view how China stepped in to lead the world when America collapsed after the 2016 election. So it's sort of a reverse King and I, if you will. Um, At least, you know, structurally or or in... in, And uh, that's how they describe it. Exactly, yeah. Um, So returning to the show uh, with us one year later is playwright David Henry Huang, if you don't know, he is a Tony Award-winning playwright, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and a three-time Obie Award winner. His works include M. Butterfly, Yellowface, and Chinglish,
3: which was directed by another one of our guests today, Lee Silverman. Lee is best known for her Tony Award-nominated direction of Violet on Broadway, as well as Lisa Kron's Well and *Lifespan of a Fact. And off-Broadway, Harry Clark, Go Back Where You Are, and... In the wake. After we speak with David and Lee, we will be joined by Soft Power cast
0: members Francis Zhu and Elise Allen Lewis. Um, Francis has a long association with David, um, performing in his plays M Butterfly, Yellow and
3: Kung Fu, and is actually playing the character of David Henry Huang or DHH and Soft Power. And Elise, who was seen on Broadway in Amelie, Disaster, and Mamma Mia, is playing a character that I think Rob is very familiar with, and that would be his boss, Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yes, I have to say, it was uh, both times when I first
0: saw the show and (laughs) seeing it again uh, at the public. uh, It's such a fascinating experience to watch someone who you know be represented on stage. And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, at the end of the show. Good, well, let's get to our guests. Let's do it. But first, we have one little... Nugget of news that we're not breaking, but we want to share with you. Oh, that's right. And that is that our beloved co-host, Jennifer Simard, uh has been cast in the Broadway revival of Company. We're very excited for Jennifer. We are overwhelmed with Glee. Um, I called her and left like a really long and uh, emotional voicemail after I heard the news um, because... First of all, I love this production. I saw it in London last year. We talked about it on the show. Uh, second of all, um, I'm just so excited to see her play uh, Sarah, right? Sarah. Sarah, uh,
3: which was the part originally created by Barbara Berry, right? It yeah, was, in fact, in, fact in the, 1970. I, yeah. I cannot think of a better actor to play that part Right? currently working in New York Oh, theater. my gosh. So we love you,
0: Jennifer. We're so, so excited. And we can't wait to see you on stage uh, this spring.
3: Yeah, back very on soon. stage.
0: I mean, we see her on stage at Mean Girls right now. Yes, we've seen her several times. We've at seen mean her several Girls. times at Mean Girls, but we'll see her in the spring. All righty, so got that off my chest. Um, let's get to our interviews. Let's do it.
3: David and Lee, welcome to the fabulous invalid. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me- us back. Yes, That's right. David, yes. This is your your <laughs> repeat. Almost, it was almost a year ago yeah. we chatted.
0: Yeah. Our, it's our anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, "Soft Power" the musical that we, you know, just adore uh, is a very unique show that requires its own very unique description. And last year we put David to the test and we asked him <laughs> to give us his elevator pitch for the show, and he knocked it out of the park, of course. So Lee, we're going to yes. put you on the spot. Oh no! And say, I was like, yeah, what is right. David going to say? <laughs> <laughs> so Lee, how do you describe the show to folks when they ask you what is "Soft Power"?
4: So Soft Power is a musical about our current political moment. It is um, a show that follows a guy named David Henry Wong um, during a time that he met um, a Chinese theater producer who was in this country. He was working on a musical with him at the time of the 2016 election. And Uh, which didn't turn out so well, and then um, the subsequent uh, hate crime that was um, inflicted on David. And basically what the show does is um, examine both this period of time in David's life and the period of um, time that we are now currently going through and um, how he was stabbed in the neck and this country was stabbed in the neck Mm -hmm. in musical form.
3: (laughs) In 2008, Soft Power premiered at the Amundsen Theater in... 2018. 2018. 2018. What did I say, really? 2008? <laughs> Pardon me. I'm on very little <laughs> that, sleep. That would be yeah. quite a long development. Yeah, I really. Be, I
4: mean, not unheard of. Not but unheard of, yeah. exactly. Spring yeah. of last year, yeah. 2018, yes. Yes. It,
3: it premiered at the Amundsen Theater, and then it moved up to the Curran in San Francisco, and now it's at the Public Theater. What has changed with the show in since California to now New York?
5: Um, I think the change has fallen to a few different areas. One is that um, the uh, w- a woman sitting next to me, Lee Silverman, as well as uh, composer Janine Tesori and our producer dramaturg Oster Eustace, really sort of dragged me kicking and screaming into looking at my character more seriously and what happened to me uh, uh, with, with more uh, weight. And similarly, the... Um, the musical itself, while uh, I think still has it, still has a lot of hilarious moments. Um, I think we also took that more seriously, and we tried to pare down some of the things that were sort of sillier in the California version. Um, The play that leads into the musical has been radically um, rewritten to really uh, hopefully focus the audience to understand what they're seeing when they come to the musical to understand that this is what happens when David's stabbed and he passes out and has this kind of fever dream.
0: Well, it's a tricky thing, I imagine, to uh, write the musical sequence of the show because it is supposed to be sort of the greatest entertainment that... You know, that the, the Chinese writers have written, right? So you're a hundred years rough, roughly in the future seeing this polished you know, gem of Chinese musical theater, if that's the phrase you, you know, would want to use. But at the same time, so much of it is a satire of our own contemporary society. So how, how, how did you navigate having to sort of pull off both of those things?
4: Well, and, and to add to that, also really the whole thing is in David's mind. Right. So really the whole thing <laughs> is, you know, it with kind of The Wizard of Oz as our North Star, it's like, you know, there is this play, this um, crime happens, he loses consciousness and then has this musical um, fever dream in which he imagines what it would be like if mm. this, you know, right. polished gem of a musical <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, was made from China's point of view. And I think that um, as we've looked at the form um, and tried to figure out what what's delicious about seeing some things twice played out exactly the same, what's interesting about seeing things played out in the opposite from how we saw it at the beginning and what just feels a little bit like um, we've already seen it, who cares? And that has been a really big part of looking at how the form works and how to make it feel both delicious, exciting, unpredictable, and also clear in terms of our point of view and intention. So, so much of the work that we did from LA and San Francisco to get to here, I think has to do with um, looking at how those events that we see in the play unspool in the musical,
5: and I think we're also looking to uh, replicate the sort of passion and craftsmanship and heart of the great musicals from the, you know the, the, the sort of first golden age of, of musicals in America. And 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 if you look at the content of a lot of those musicals, you know there's a lot of stuff in it that's really questionable uh, or just wrong. And so the idea of creating a musical where the story we know is wrong. Um, and yet being able to do it with that degree of heart and commitment, I don't we certainly wouldn't have been able to pull it off without Janine Desori. Mm.
4: And I think one of the things that's so incredible about the score is you can know everything about um, the American Musical Theatre canon and hear the way that she's quoting every single major musical inside of all of our songs, or you can know nothing about musical theater and just feel like these songs are um, fun, romantic, soaring all of these incredible um because her skill is so is so amazing and i think that is such an incredible thing to be able to have the score understood on multiple levels mm-hmm. and that you can come to it without knowing anything or you can know, know oh right that's music man oh that was Oklahoma, that was, you know, and you can feel the way that she's quoting and um, really turning music that we know and love so well into her own and kind of reappropriating it um, into this musical in a way that is so,
0: I think, uh, unbelievably good. <laughs> As Zoe says, it's the delivery system, right? The delivery mm-hmm. system, And yes. if you've got all the right ingredients, you know, it's still, it still, it strikes you and it hits you at the heart. Yeah. Uh, right, like-
5: which is really a term that I appropriated from Janine Tussauds. <laughs> I'm stuck I'm stuck into so, Zoe's mouth. So maybe
0: there's a little bit of Janine and Zoe there. Yeah. like, you're not the only, uh, you know, analog of the show. Um, well, this is a show, obviously, given the the, just the, the plot and the the setting of it, um, that tackles you know a host of contemporary social, political, uh, cultural issues. So much so that you know every night, almost the audience. The, the, the show can impact the audience in a different way based off of that day's news. How do you navigate that minefield you know, from a writing perspective and from a directing perspective?
5: I mean, I think it was fairly obvious after the 2016 election that mm-hmm. there were certain things that were going to play out over the next few years, including um, some sort of conflict with China. It was mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that a nationalistic government was going to... Uh, feel threatened by the rise of uh, a rival power and try to do something to stop that. So th- there things like that that are in the show that yes have turned out to be true on some level, uh, but I-, I feel were fairly easy to to predict. Um, For and- you, <laughs> <laughs> and then every there's- <laughs> day I'm like,
1: how did he know that
4: was going to happen?
5: <laughs> and then there's some things that we just lucked out, at, you know, like the fast food and uh, the, right. the prevalence of fast food in the current White House. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it's it really speaks to how how prescient um, David's been and how clear he was about what would happen. And I would say that four years ago, before the 2016 election, when we started working on the show, it seemed like we were making a show that would be weird and crazy and sci-fi and fantastical. And in some ways, the world that we're living in now is weirder and more fantastical than our show. Um, in many ways, in fact. And the idea that um, we would be questioning democracy, that we would be um, practically in a war with China, Mm -hmm. that we would um, think that our government was run by buffoons. I mean, that the whole system that we were living inside of would be something that we would really think twice about on a regular basis, about do we have the best system or not. I mean, that very question, the idea that we would be in a situation that we would be thinking about that all the time, every day, that that question would be rolling around in our brains, is democracy something that we want to hold on to? It seemed impossible. It seemed like that, that would never be and, and have an urgency that it does right now. And here we are, More m- th- that question is more urgent than ever, particularly as we face the 2020 election.
5: When do we vote? When do we vote? On the Tuesday after the first Monday in the month of November. The month of November on the Tuesday after the
3: first Monday in the month.
4: And so in many ways, it seems like the the idea of the show has only be, it was easy to move the show in a direction of taking itself more seriously because we take it more seriously because the questions feel less crazy, and more, in fact, part of our everyday fabric of our lives.
5: And in the same way that, you know, one can say that America was stabbed in the neck in 2016, we can also say that we've all been living in a sort of a fever dream since 2016. Mm. Um, That the things that we accept as normal now uh, would have been kind of unimaginable five years ago. And so the fact that David falls into a fever dream in this show and dreams this musical um, also sort of functions as a metaphor for where we all are as a country. I mean, an original version of this show was trying to investigate China's desire to gain soft power, mm. and I think what the 2016 election did was make this a show which maybe starts out with that question, but certainly ends with the question: um, Has America to what extent are we losing our soft power, and um, is there the possibility of regaining it? Mm. So, I, I do feel that you know we're we're living through this mo this big historical moment, and it's hard to write about the time you're living in, um, so the device here to sort of pull back and try to perceive it, yes, it's in David's heads, but David is trying to look at it as if from a dis- the, the lens of history, uh, I think helps to kind of process uh, the, the uh, a method for looking at the times that we are in right now.
0: And something that I thought of the first time I even read about the show was the fact that now that this musical, with this musical within a play, <laughs> to use the, the proper you know, uh, line <clears throat> exists, it is now a part of history, and it will exist you know, forever as long as you know, we're recording things and <laughs> passing them down and sharing them. Um, and you, you talked about, when we talked with you last year, the fact that there are very few musicals about Asian Americans. Or with Asian American characters, um, and this is now a new entry into a s- short list of <laughs> musicals that call for a cast with Asian American actors, um, and that's very exciting. And certainly by the end of the show, all that that point is very clearly made, uh, and is very powerful. And that is that is something that has changed, right, since since the original production.
5: Um, yeah, I mean the we. The ending is different here than it was in California. I think the California ending was more of a sort of uh, full-throated, one might say, um, simpler affirmation of democracy, Mm. as opposed to this version, which we, we really worked on to ask a question, which is, you know, are we going to survive as a democracy? Are you, the, the sort of current crisis of democracy that's happening all over the world really not just here? Um, and and if so, uh, how can we inject a sort of note of hope, however tentative? Mm. Um, and I think that's that's how it ends now. Also, affirming this notion of having an all Asian or virtually all Asian cast on stage, which is t- talking about America, which is commenting on this country, whereas so many times we are considered not part of this country, we're considered sort of perpetual foreigners.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a revolution to have a show that has um, m- mostly all but one Asian American actors on stage who are. Being asked to do things that typically Asian American actors are not asked to do be in leading roles, not just be sidekicks, not just be sexy girlfriends, but to in fact um, inhabit and embody every single character with um, a a sense of humor and a sense of style and a sense of um, seriousness and gravitas. And I think it's. um, I mean, I think a lot about, because we're on, on the Newman stage, which is where A Chorus Line was done, and I think about what it must have felt like at that time to see that show, and I look at our cast, and I think it's, um, it's a bold statement, and I think it's a really important one in this moment to say, um, this is a story that needs to be taken seriously, um, and not only because of the story itself, but because of the people who are telling it. And um, it really asked the audience to um, understand, I think, uh, because of the King and I reference, because of the way the show is set up, that um, this is a cast of people um, who haven't been looked at um, enough and haven't been given the respect that they deserve. and the parts that they should have, and it feels like a dare. And in a way, um, uh, I, I mean, it's one of the things that I love most about the end of the show—to um, see to see them there saying, um, "This is America," and and I think it's a very—it um, feels particularly um, right now. It's um, it feels like how can you turn away from that?
5: And just to be specific about your uh, referencing earlier, sort of the. The uh, paucity of these sorts of shows. Um, it you know this is really the third show in all of Broadway history that has uh, that features Asians as Americans, right. um, in it, as opposed to Asians being foreigners.
4: Right. I mean, in a very early rehearsal, one of the um, women in our company said that you know she had never really been in a show um, where she hasn't had to bow to a man
2: um
4: and I was very moved by that and certainly if that is not the experience of um white actresses white musical theater actresses you know they can say oh I have had you know crappy parts but to be able to say that and that this is the first show for her where that's true I think it's um I mean, what's more important than to feel like you can be in a show and um, have more experiences than just that? Let's hope it's the beginning of
3: a huge shift. Let's hope. <laughs> Speaking of shifts, Lee, how, has your relationship to The King and I changed drastically since you've started working on this show?
4: Well, you know, it's so funny. I, you know, I've always, you know, whatever about The King and I, you know, I, I, I whatever. But, you know, David and I saw The King and I together because one of our other collaborators, Hoon Lee, who we worked with on Yellowface, was in The King and I at Lincoln Center and we went to see it. And Um, and you know, it's, it was, it's funny to think about us sitting in that theater at that time, being really excited and and proud of Hoon that now we've now spent all these years working on this other show, which is really takes that show apart. But I do, um, you know, I guess what I feel like is I, and I think David, I think I I think you agree with this but I I believe The King and I should be done I don't think that we should stop doing musicals what I believe and I I have directed other um, revivals of problematic musicals and you know I think that that what they need is um, a point of view and that they need an understanding of what the material is and it needs to be examined um, so that they're not museum pieces but that they're done but they're done with um, respect and they're done with, um, with a uh, a look at um, what's problematic about them and a rigor, and so I think that do I speak for you when yeah. I say that? So, <laughs> so just to say, I lo- I think The King and I is um, incredible. We many of the as I was saying before, many of the people in our cast have been in The King and I multiples and multiples of times, and um, you know it's a show that should be done. I just think you know what I would love to see is like a double bill or like a two parter where you see The King and I and then you see Soft Power because I actually think they would talk so beautifully to each other, and in fact. You know what um, what RNH did with that score, what Janine has done with our score. I mean, they they those pieces are um, they're communicating across time, and so I I want I want it to be done, but I would also like it to be done with people having an understanding of what they're seeing, and I do feel like soft power brings some of that understanding to people who maybe haven't thought of it quite that
6: way.
3: notion of soft power and the king and I only being done in rep moving forward (laughs) that to me is like sign me up (laughs) call Lincoln Center Theater I know right call whomever just let's make that happen dueling polkas you know yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) but it's true it's through that lens you know if you look back um and and through the lens of of how something was made but what's wrong with it and and how we can change is how change happens right that's that's an important part of why it shouldn't just be a museum piece. You have to take a fresh look at it yeah. and examine what's really in there. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I think you have to hold, um, you know, somewhat competing notions in your head, mm-hmm. which is um, King and I is a beautiful musical. It's almost, uh, arguably, you know, perfectly constructed. Um, it was very progressive for its time, um, and we can appreciate those things while also understanding the degree to which um, there are things that just. Are probably wrong about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have one well actually we have two questions left that we wanted to ask each of you. Um, the question that the show asks at the end which is do you still believe in democracy?
4: Yeah. I mean I feel like it's um, flawed. It's frequently um, maddening. And I think the, um, just like works of art and people and all the things that matter, like the harder they are, usually the more worth it they are. And I think that we are in a place right now where um, we're feeling how important it is because it's slipping away. Mm. And I, feel that very consciously. I don't know, I think I would have taken it for granted, actually, if it wasn't for this moment. And if there's any silver lining to this, you know, total shit show that we're in right now, it would be that I think we've all come to appreciate, I, or or at least I feel strongly that I've come to appreciate um, what we have in a way that if we hadn't had to fight for it, I wouldn't have understood it. And um, it has made me want to understand... Um, our constitution. It has made me want to understand um, how art can function in this time. I think it has made many pieces of theater that feel urgent and necessary. Um, I think it has made those pieces more widely accessible and because more people want to come together and commune and figure it out. So I guess what I feel like is yes, and also we have to um look at it I think just we were saying about old musicals we have to look at it and say they made that document a long time ago and like <laughs> you know we like ha- what can we bring to it with fresh eyes and um, and who does it leave out mm-hmm. and in what ways and in what kind of um, w- what kind of holes are there inside of that um, idea of democracy that has allowed for this situation to happen and
5: um, and you know, at the end of our show, uh, the DHH character is sort of given the opportunity to go to China if he wants to feel safer and chooses not to go. And I, I, that's my position too. I mean, I don't want to live in China. I don't want to live um, in a, a, an authoritarian system. Um, so I believe in democracy and a majoritarian democracy. Just a voting in and of itself is probably not sufficient. Um, you know, it's. We need democracy, and we need education, um, and we need uh, a a means of dialogue, and and we need to respect our social structures and and strengthen them. So democracy exists within a whole context, um, which uh, we also need to be attentive to, and which has rapidly eroded over the past few decades. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> Just Letting that one know. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for for a second, um, and it also sounds like the Constitution's in need of a rewrite.
4: Potentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's what Heidi Shrek's show. You know, we talk about Heidi's yes. show all the time, yeah. and mm. I mean, there's a couple of plays that we have used as um, as real. Um, Beacons for us over over these couple of years. And um, Anne Washburn's play, Mr. Burns, uh, is one. Yeah. Um, Heidi's play, more recently, and I I think that um, that question that Heidi poses at the end of the play and the way that that play works has very much influenced. I think we were all really um, taken with it. We we all saw it multiple times, and I think um, it's uh, it's just asking the question feels. So, You know, it it felt so radical, and now it feels like, how could we not?
0: How could we not? Well, we had one last question that we wanted to ask Lee. Since we asked you, David, last time when you were on the show, this is our perennial question we ask everyone. We ask everyone. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) good, oh,
3: good. you are in good company. Which
0: is, um, what was the show or experience that happened earlier in your life that made you want to work in the theater?
3: Oh,
4: wow. Um, I mean... There were so many. I mean, Mm -hmm. I grew up uh, in Washington, D.C. And so I was I went to Arena Stage and Mm -hmm. Zelda Fitchhandler ran that theater. And I I can honestly say because of her um, and because I I had the opportunity to see plays that she directed and she was running that theater. And I was just like, of course, you know, women. And it wasn't until Mm -hmm. much later that I was like, oh, oh, wait, that's That's weird? Oh, you know, because it felt... So I'm really... I feel like that was a big, big part of it. Um, And then I think that... I saw Lily Tomlin's solo show that she did when it was touring through the Kennedy Center, and I was 10. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like every hair on my body just stood up and I thought that was the most incredible writing and I remember you know I remember my parents sort of feeling like maybe that play was too weird for me or too sophisticated and then I remember you know I begged them to buy it for me and I just was pouring over it in my bedroom and I thought oh words can do magic and there is um a kind of unbelievable liminal space that happens between a word on a page and then the way that someone can perform it and um and i was also an only child and extremely bossy so i was like (laughs) i need to figure out how to get in there with somebody and make that happen because i was really excited about that play and i think it it inspired me to want um to to do it and also to figure out how it worked so well. Like, why did that play work like that? And partly it was the text, and partly it was the performance, and partly it was the magic in between.
0: Well, thank you for sharing your magic with us. Uh, We're all the lucky beneficiaries of Soft Power and your creative brilliance, both of you. Um, Thanks for coming down and chatting with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
1: Thank you, guys. Great to be here. With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Now we're joined by two of the show stars, Francis Ju and Elise Allen-Lewis. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid.
6: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Nice Thanks to for be
3: coming here. down. No, Thank you. You. Very excited. <laughs> um, maybe at least we'll start with you. What was your relationship to the King and I before you started working on this show? The King and I was actually one of my first shows as a child.
6: I played the littlest child in a <laughs> in summer stage Upper Darby summer stage's production of the King and I in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania.
3: Excellent. Yes.
2: Francis. I really wish I'd played the king in your production. <laughs> turning you around would have been just awesome. Um, I actually, uh, the reason, whole reason why I'm in this business is because I saw my third oldest brother, Jeff, play the prince in a high school production mm-hmm. of The King and I, which was brilliant. He was one of two Asian people in the company. But I was so entranced by this beautiful show, which the high school drama teacher had choreographed with all of the original Jerome Robbins choreography. and, and it, w- it was just beautiful. and I couldn't believe that Mrs. Anna was actually crying on stage and I was so shy. I couldn't talk to people um, when I was 11, 12 years old, and I just knew that that's what I had to do. Um, uh, and, and that everyone in that show was Siamese. It was like, Having grown up Catholic, it was like the Transfiguration. It was they were they were it was a really spiritual moment, and then eventually um, I got to play the king in uh, a few different productions, and um, I, I I at first turned it down because I didn't want to embarrass myself, because the only kings I had ever seen had pecs the size of my head. And I, I was like, I'm not going to take my shirt off. If I'm doing it, I'm not going to take my shirt off, and I'm going to study the real king, and I'm going to try to inject that into it. And Paul Blake at the he said, well, all right, that's the kind of king I want. Okay. And... um
3: oh my God, you do a great Paul Blake, by Oh, the way. I love
2: Paul. <laughs> and um, he he invited me over to his apartment to show me costume renderings of all the vests I would wear so I wouldn't have to take off my shirt and then I got to the Muni and it's 105 degrees in the shade and I'm like please can I take my clothes off
0: <laughs> an all nude production of the yes, King and I. exactly <laughs> that's the concept yeah. <laughs> it's all Calcutta me, it was so. great it was Think actually really great well jumping forward to soft power um, you each are in the unique position of playing characters that are based off of real people, uh, and real people who are you know, still alive and in the world, <laughs> very much. Mm-hmm. Um, Elise, you play, of course, uh, a fictionalized version of Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yes. And Francis, you play a fictionalized version of the playwright, David Henry Huang, who no just spoke to. No pressure. No <laughs> pressure, right? So what's it like for each of you stepping into the shoes of a real person, I'm doing air quotes right now, a real person every night? I
6: think I took that on so much out of town when we mm. did the show. Uh, even though I'm playing a fictionalized version of Hillary, I definitely um, took that pressure on of uh, there being a real person who I admire in the world and me playing a character by that name. Um, as I've lived in the piece and found my fictionalized version of this character, it's changed the way that I am in every room that I walk into um, in this business now, working on this show. It's been life-changing.
0: Wow. When you say it's changed uh, you know who you are, what, what, can you unfold uh, that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think this
6: character, <laughs> Zoe, who I play in the play, right, right. and Hillary, mm-hmm. I believe that um, you're seeing the character of Hillary in public and in private in a way that I've never played a character like this on stage. Mm. And I think um, in building the character of Hillary, there's been many moments of having to demand attention and not ask for permission. And this is something that I have had trouble with as an actress in this business. Standing up, standing still, demanding attention without asking for permission. Um, physically standing in a room without apology not apologizing for things I'm not sorry for breaking down my own conditioning as a woman in the profession that we're in Um, and I'm I'm sure it's also because with Lee and Janine at the helm I have two women who have encouraged me to do so because I watch them do that in our room Um, so that's what it's like. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> building this show, building this character. Mm-hmm. It's really been life-changing to step out of this room and go into others and say, okay, I'm gonna demand attention and not ask for permission right. in every room I'm in. Hard. <laughs> Difficult. Still those moments where I'm like, am I a bitch? Am I asking too much? Do I deserve this? Um, but yes, also you do no you're not but also <laughs> keep doing but it. also that's what this character I feel like right? is also going through. I know nothing yeah. about being in politics but I know a lot about being in a business where you're right. performing
0: It's a big big show.
6: yeah you're performing a hundred percent of the time you know who am I not performing for? This is something I think about when I'm playing this character. Um, and so in building her in thinking about it in terms of my own life, this fictionalized Hillary also this character of Zoe it's really now a part of how I see myself going on from this room and taking it into others.
0: Wow. Francis.
2: Well, before I talk about me, <laughs> I, I just I'm grateful for this opportunity to say something about Elise yes. in public. And I, I just have to say that over the course of you know almost two years now, watching her build this character and help to build this company, um, and helped to build this show, which has, as you know and have seen, has evolved over time, both in its, its tone and in um, how seriously it takes itself. I, I have been amazed and um, awed by how courageous Elise is.
5: It's
6: broken my heart on the floor I was taught in the land of the free in the land where they screamed at me life liberty How can I turn my back on democracy?
2: It has made me braver um, to watch you Elise um and, and as the creative team has has um, uh, really been tough on themselves, where the relationship between this Chinese producer and Hil- Hillary Clinton is concerned, and then as they got tough on themselves uh, about answering the question, why is David in this play? Why did he put himself in the middle of this play that becomes a musical? And and um, what does it mean that? Um, David, in fact, got stabbed in the middle of the street. And, um, you know, there are plenty of ways to make a joke out of it. I mean, he indeed did return the groceries home before he walked himself to the hospital. He did indeed say, I think I'm going to faint now before he passed out once reaching the ER. And, you know, as soon as he woke up in the hospital, he was already on Facebook making jokes about it. The man is incredibly brilliant and funny, and um, has a great way of turning things into hilarious stories. But I think over the course of working on this show in the last three years, he's really started to cope with what it means in the current context in this country as well to have been a victim of a hate crime, Mm. and almost dying, and being a rich, successful, renowned leader in his industry and in the community and none of that protected him and uh, what does it mean to uh, uh, assume that you're an American with certain rights and suddenly none of that actually matters uh, in a moment and uh, for that not to be solved And, um, and because he's had to face all of that playing him in the show I've had to face all of that, and um, we've actually, um, particularly about the very end of the show, um, in rehearsals, had discussions about um, being um, an other, and how you grow up censoring yourself, you grow up wondering if you're ever going to reveal the thing that gets you excluded, Mm -hmm. saying the wrong thing, wearing the wrong thing, behaving the wrong way, um, whether it's because I'm um, Asian or because I'm gay or because I'm little or because uh, everyone assumes I'm a tenor and I'm not, you know, it's it's all of those things that add up to you, as Elise said so articulately, not assuming when you walk into a room that you can just take up space, mm. that you have to ask for it, you have to apologize for it, you have to make a joke about it, and. Um, I think for even for David, that was a discovery uh that uh, you know he'd been anticipating being attacked um, ever since he was aware that he was different and um uh when i uh look at the rest of this company on stage at the very end of the show and and um I know how talented they are, how devoted they are, how disciplined they are, how, and, and what great people they are, too. Um, and, and to know that the vast majority of them are only waiting for the next audition for Miss Saigon or The King and I, that breaks my heart, every single performance. And, um, and then I get to look at the audience and ask them, do you see them in other shows? Do you, do you see them as human beings? Um, even, uh, that you can relate to. And, and I, I gotta say, it's because this show is so beautifully written and beautifully staged that um, it, is never, uh, it has never failed to uh, move me when I look out at the house and see people really understanding and feeling the same uh, sense of trauma and, and so sympathizing in a, in a really emotional way. I mean, and it's so generous, I think, of David, um, because he could have looked at the audience and say, fuck you, yeah, you're part of the problem, yeah. you stabbed me. But what he actually is saying is, we've all been stabbed. We've, we've, you know, we're all living with this trauma. No matter what side you're on, what aisle, side of the aisle you're on, everyone is feeling attacked. Yeah. Everyone is feeling um, victimized by this time that we're living in. Some people started feeling that when they were little. Other people started feeling that in 2016. Right. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> and and, and he doesn't have an answer. He's just asking the question, you know, are, what, what are we going to do? What, 10, 11 years ago when he wrote Yellow Face? Very late in the process, um, he added a line for his own character at the end, where, which, which is a, a, a show all about mistaken identity. and you know, a white person shouldn't play an Asian person on stage, and he mistakenly casts a white person as a, a yellow person in his play. and you, know, drama and hilarity ensues. And at the end of the play, his, the character who represents himself says, "If my father imagines that he could be Jimmy Stewart, why can't a white person play an Asian person on stage? And for a while, when that line was introduced in the script, the company really flinched. Like, isn't that, isn't that not what we're saying in this play? Um, and, um, and yet, that truly is what David is driving at. We're not there yet, perhaps, where I, would, where I or he would say, yeah, it's okay to, for, you know, a white person to play the king or to play dhh in soft power but uh, but isn't that the goal you know we do have ideals and in this in soft power the ideals are what we learned in the pledge of allegiance and the preamble to the constitution and the declaration of independence and we're not living up to it mm. we never have completely we're closer than we were but we're, we we ain't there yet
0: well, Elise, I'm interested to hear from your perspective as the only white person in the cast, you know, you and your standby are the only white actors uh, in this ensemble. Um, what has that sort of taught you?
6: I think it's more important that I'm surrounded by an entirely Asian-American cast mm-hmm. uh, rather than me being the only white person. Sure. Um, I think that being a part of this family who really at this point we're all family. Um, The way that my Asian American cast members have trusted me with their stories, trusted me with their feelings, felt like they could share that with me, they could share their experiences. Um, It's given me just an understanding, a compassion, an empathy um, for, what they've been through and that's what this experience has been like for me being with them they're my cho they're my chosen family they're my family <laughs> at this point
0: hey, you know I don't, I don't know if you know this at
2: least but i actually i work for hillary yes. clinton yes there you go so i do <laughs> yeah. i want to hear all about me it. Too. Experience. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> those campaigns and the night you know right yeah, yeah. i mean I,
0: I was there through it all you know um, <laughs> But it was um, interesting. As I twice? Yeah, no, you know, way it ended in twenty sixteen. <sighs> yeah, it's it's been quite a journey. <laughs> um, but I talked to her about the show um, when I first saw it in L.A. Because I, I did catch the show at at the Amundsen. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, every time I see something where she's a character, which isn't that often, but, you know, I have an extra set of antenna up about, like, okay, well, how how am I going to feel about this since I know this person, right? (laughs) You know? Um, And what I said to her afterwards was, you know, um, it's a very, you know, humane portrait of of you, and, you know, you're you're definitely a character, right? I mean, it's, you know, because obviously it's an imagined story, right? I mean, you didn't actually fall in love with a Chinese film executive. Um, But uh, what I said to her was. There's one part in in the beginning of Act Two where you know she's cramming pizza and ice cream down her throat, and I don't know, I don't. That just felt like maybe that wasn't you, and she laughed and said, "Well, actually, you know, <laughs> not too far off." I'm really know. proud of that
6: moment. Yeah, I'm like, very proud of that moment because as we staged that, um, as I was with David Lee Janine staging that moment, um, when I would get food. You know, on my face, on my hands, and I'd wipe it off and have these long conversations with them about the fact that, but you're in private, nobody's with you, and what do we do to cope? Right. What do we do to self-soothe? Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of what I mean about it's it's in the last number democracy when I'm singing out there and I'm alone and I'm talking about my belief system, but there's also an unapologetic nature to, Expressing what you're going through in private, no matter what feelings come out, how hurt you are, how you feel in the moment, eating your feelings, <laughs> um, making sure that I'm not taking anything away from my face, my hands. Janine and Lee would be like, do not wipe anything off as you're oh eating,
3: as you are. <laughs> that had to have been hard.
6: I think, I think it felt um, in many ways very freeing. It felt extremely freeing to feel like I don't I am enough, just as I am here, with mm-hmm. food on my face, um, in a tattered suit, expressing my anger, my sadness, um, laughing through it, crying through it. these are things that I admire about the character I'm playing mm-hmm. and these are things that I would hope if the real Hillary saw our show that she would find relatable. Right. And at times, I mean, we say all the time, I say it all the time, like, I don't care what people think, I don't care, right? But I, I, I do, I do. And I think in terms of my journey with this show out of town and here, I sometimes worry, um, or I sometimes have thought about like, well do I get pressure put on me to be a, the, the real Hillary? Although sometimes I feel like if the real Hillary was playing this character, people would still think that yeah. she wasn't real enough. Yeah.
3: <laughs> because yeah. that's yeah. what
6: we put her through yeah. Yeah. as mm-hmm. a nation when she ran. And so there are many times where I feel that, I think that's actually given me even more strength in this run, feeling like, well, my version of this person is who you get. And if you think that another performer should be playing her or you think that if the real person was playing her, that wouldn't be enough. I don't know who would be able to play her mm. to because that's also how this character is built. Yeah. She's built to not be able to do enough. And as women, I think mm-hmm. we know that feeling all too well. Mm-hmm. So that's been really interesting yeah. for me.
0: Yeah. I was just about to say, I mean, that's that's the brilliance of David and. Selecting. I mean, he could have chosen any political figure. He could have set this in any time. He could have used any convention he wanted, and he chose Hillary Clinton for a reason, right? Because yeah. of what you've just said, right? I mean, the endless unpacking and, and uh, criticism, and you know, it, it makes for, to put that character on stage, her as a character on stage, you mm-hmm. know, it, it opens up so many possibilities, and it, to talk about a lot of you know, the, the way that our culture um, looks at women, yes, yeah. women in politics, yeah. you know, as a separate, totally, uh, you know, category, um, and our politicians generally, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the idea of putting on a show, of yeah. you know, policy plans not being good enough. Mm -hmm. that you still have to take those selfies, and you still have to tap dance, essentially. And Mm -hmm. twerk. And twerk. Twerk for those votes. (laughs)
3: Exactly. Twerk for those votes. votes. That should go on a button. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and
6: feel like, as we were building that dance number, as well, that to change the tone from in the moments where, well, I I don't want to give much away about that (laughs) number, because a lot happens. But there's a moment where if if she's dancing for her voters, and there's a particular style of dance that's, say, a little more risque than another (laughs) part of the dance, there were times where I would be like sticking out my tongue as I was doing those moves, and so my, the, our choreographer Sam Pinkleton, our associate Sunny, hit um, Lee, Janine, David. We'd have these long conversations about the fact that. Uh, to be that cheeky about the style of dance or to not really take it seriously that you're getting people on your side. Mm. um, That's when the tone changes from satiric to serious to Mm -hmm. true. How can I perform this dance and really feel like I am pulling out all the stops for the people that I love because... And I don't know Hillary personally, but (laughs) what I think I know about this person or the essence of her is how much she loves the people. Mm -hmm. And so then it's those moments of being like, it's easier to be funny because it's harder to stay true. And so I think that's also been something that has shifted with all of us. As we worked Mm -hmm. on this piece again, that's been something that the team has really talked with us about. Like, it is much easier to to be funny, to laugh something off, to be cheeky, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's harder to actually commit to the truth.
2: Yeah, my, my experience of people after the show uh, coming up to me and commenting on the fact that Hillary is in the show, um, if, if they loved Hillary already, it was just such wish fulfillment. Like, we wish that she could eat pizza and ice cream and (laughs) fall in love and be loved back, you know? Um, And for those people, even, you know, progressive liberal people who did not like Hillary, they, to a person, have said to me that they came to an understanding and a sympathy for Hillary that they hadn't realized that they could possibly feel for her. Um, I, I will say one at one particular talkback after a show a woman raised her hand and she really wanted to know her burning question was in real life did Hillary kiss the Chinese man? And that's how good this, this delivery system is of musicals right? She thought that we were depicting something that really it happened, happened might have really happened and I, I asked her well what what do you hope happened? And she says, Well, if she wasn't married, I hope she went for it. And, you know, I, I just think that's lo- uh, uh, the, one of the best things I've ever heard about the show.
0: <laughs> well, there is uh, a question that the show asks that is, you know, uh, you know pretty obvious, and you've seen it. But uh, in the end, you know, essentially, Hillary's point, which is inspired by Zoe's point very early in the play, yes. um, it's so tautly written, um, is you know, do you still believe in democracy? Mm. And it's a question that you know we were just talking to Lee and David that you know many of us have never asked or had to think about until the past couple of years. Um, so I'll throw the question to you, as Francis and Elise, not Hillary and DHH. Uh, do you still believe? and democracy.
2: (laughs) I believe in theater, which is largely a totalitarian regime. (laughs) But I I believe in its aspirational um, aspects, like going back to when I was a kid and watching a high school production of The King and I. And it allows us to imagine a better world, sometimes in hilarious and ridiculous ways. sometimes in really dramatic ways. But it gets us outside of ourselves. We get to identify with someone else. It's an act of compassion. Mm. And I think that that's what democracy is, is um, it has the, all of that potential, and it has all of that um, hope that we are, are caring enough about other people... To vote on certain things, um, but it's like any like any other system of government, it is imperfect, um, and maybe because uh, people get to vote, you know, uh, we're all so stupid about so many things. Why should I have a say in you know w- where the water pipes should be? You know, I, I, any anything. So uh, yeah, I, I believe in democracy, but. Um, i don't I don't think we are living in one quite yet
6: I feel a complicated relationship with democracy. Mm. I think it's complicated. I would say that's something that's probably felt for many of us living in this country right now um, but it gives me a lot of hope to be in a show like this and to be asking these questions mm-hmm. and if democracy is all about the people, like I believe in people. I believe in the good of people. And so, whether or not in that complication, we can come to an understanding and create an even better belief system. Hmm. That's my hope. And I forget
3: what I really should know. I forget that it's such a big, big show.
5: Enough, wise enough, enough, just enough, just enough, enough, worthy of trust enough, kind enough, smart with enough.
6: With a big heart enough, good and grown-up enough.
5: To lift us up, lift us up. Lift us, lift us up. lift
3: us up! Lift us
0: up! Rob here with you may be wondering. Following our conversations with Lee Silverman, David Henry Huang, Elise Allen Lewis, and Francis Zhu about the brilliant musical within a play that is soft power. I have to admit, my head is spinning a little. When I first heard about the show in 2018, I just so happened to be heading to Los Angeles. So I bought a ticket and I caught a performance at the Amundsen Theater where it made its world premiere in a center theater group production. As you may know from our interview with Hillary Rodham Clinton last season, or as you might've picked up from our conversations on this episode, I've worked for Secretary Clinton for over a decade now. And she just so happens to be a character in Soft Power. So I really had to see this show as soon as I could. You may be wondering though, What is it like for me to see my boss reflected on stage as a character in a musical? Well, as she said on the show back in June, it's kind of an odd experience for her to see herself rendered as a character in any form of media, which makes sense. I mean, imagine if someone made a movie or a musical where you were a character. Of course, they'd get a lot wrong because no one can truly know the truth of someone else's life. Then again, sometimes it does take a third party to point out elements of your own character that maybe you're just too close to see. Getting back to Secretary Clinton, I got this question a lot when Lucas Nath's play, Hillary and Clinton, was on Broadway last spring. That play is set in an alternate universe where a woman named Hillary, who is married to a man named Bill, who used to be president, is now running for president herself. Sound familiar? The play dramatized a short period of time in the lead-up to the New Hampshire primary in 2008, which then Senator Clinton famously won, re-energizing her campaign. That play, which took a serious look at past events that are now history, attempted to demonstrate a psychological portrait of Secretary Clinton and her marriage. While I'm certainly too close to be objective, I didn't care for it. When it comes to soft power, though, the story is different. Instead of a thinly-veiled examination of recent history, the musical within soft power is a fantasy, an imagined story involving Hillary Clinton that has become mythologized some 100 years into the future and that exists entirely in the dream state of the character DHH after he's near-fatally stabbed on a Brooklyn street— Since the character of Hillary is exactly that, a character, existing in a fiction, seen through the eyes of Chinese musical theater writers in the future, there's a freedom of dramatic license that allows someone like me, who knows the real Hillary Clinton, and audiences writ large, to observe larger truths about the former First Lady, Senator, Secretary of State, and presidential candidate's status as a symbol, but also her legacy as a leader, divorced from the day-to-day back-and-forth of temporal politics. In this way, oddly enough... The Hillary Clinton of Soft Power comes across as more truthful than the Hillary Clinton of Hillary and Clinton, precisely because she's not meant to be the real thing. Obviously, they are two very different works, attempting to make different points and examine different aspects of Secretary Clinton's identity, symbolism, and place in history. But it just so happens that they both played New York in the span of six months. So, what is it like for me to see someone I know as a character in Soft Power? The truth is, Whoever you are, you have a relationship with Hillary Clinton that will color how you see and perceive her betrayal on stage, which ultimately speaks to David Henry Huang's intelligence as a writer and dramatist, in choosing her as the American leader he'd mythologize in his reversed East-West musical within a play. The title, Soft Power, is a term coined by political scientist Joseph Nye that refers to the way in which the culture, political values, and foreign policies of a country can exert their influence around the world non-coercively. In the show, there's a big debate about American democracy, as we talked about on this episode, and the power of our example around the world. In choosing Hillary Clinton, David was also choosing someone who, as a symbol, but also as a real person, a leader, has played a major role in flexing America's soft power, particularly in the way she comported herself following the 2016 election. Musicals are also a source of soft power. And this show, in particular, gives me hope for the future of the form and its influence, both in America and around the world. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday.